1: Good evening. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 12 and 13 of A Journey to the Center of the Earth by Jules Verne. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful, Night's sleep. Chapter 12 The Ascent of Mount Sneffels. The huge volcano, which was the
0: first stage of our daring experiment, is above five thousand feet high. Sneffels is the termination of a long range of volcanic mountains of a different character to the system of the island itself. One of its peculiarities is its two huge pointed summits. From whence we started, it was impossible to make out the real outlines of the peak against the grey field of sky. All we could distinguish was a vast dome of white, which fell downward from the head of the giant. The commencement of the great undertaking filled me with awe. Now that we had actually started, I began to believe in the reality of the undertaking. Our party formed quite a procession. We walked in single file, preceded by hands, the imperturbable eider duck hunter. He calmly led us by narrow paths where two persons could by no possibility walk abreast. Conversation was wholly impossible. We had all the more opportunity to reflect and admire the awful grandeur of the scene around. Beyond the extraordinary basaltic wall of the fjord of Sapi, we found ourselves making our way through fibrous turf, over which grew a scanty vegetation of grass, the residuum of the ancient vegetation of the swampy peninsula. The vast mass of this combustible, the field of which as yet is utterly unexplored, would suffice to warm Iceland for a whole century. This mighty turf pit, measured from the bottom of certain ravines, is often no less than seventy feet deep, and presents to the eye the view of successive layers of black, burned-up rocky detritus, separated by thin streaks of porous sandstone. The grandeur of the spectacle was undoubted, as well as its arid and deserted air. As a true nephew of the great Professor Hardwig, and despite my preoccupation and doleful fears of what was to come, I observed with great interest the vast collection of mineralogical curiosities spread out before me. IN THIS VAST MUSEUM OF NATURAL HISTORY. LOOKING BACK TO MY RECENT STUDIES, I WENT OVER IN THOUGHT THE WHOLE GEOLOGICAL HISTORY OF ICELAND. THIS EXTRAORDINARY AND CURIOUS ISLAND MUST HAVE MADE ITS APPEARANCE FROM OUT OF THE GREAT WORLD OF WATER AT A COMPARATIVELY RECENT DATE. Like the coral islands of the Pacific, it may, for aught we know, be still rising by slow and imperceptible degrees. If this really be the case, its origin can be attributed to only one cause, that of the continued action of subterranean fires.
1: This was a happy thought. If so, if this were true, away with the theories of
0: Sir Humphrey Davy, away with the authority of the parchment of Arne the wonderful pretensions to discovery on the part of my uncle and
1: to our journey. All must end in smoke. Charmed with the idea, I began more carefully to look about me. A serious study of the
0: soil was necessary to negative or confirm my hypothesis. I took in every item of what I saw, and I began to comprehend the succession of phenomena which had preceded its formation. Iceland being absolutely without sedimentary soil is composed exclusively of volcanic turfa that is to say of an agglomeration of stones and of rock of a porous texture long before the existence of volcanoes it was composed of a solid body of massive trap rock lifted bodily and slowly out of the sea, by the action of the centrifugal force at work in the earth. The internal fires, however, had not as yet burst their bounds and flooded the exterior cake of Mother Earth with hot and raging lava. My readers must excuse this brief and somewhat pedantic geological lecture, but it is necessary to the complete understanding of what follows. At a later period in the world's history, a huge and mighty fissure must, reasoning by analogy, have been dug diagonally from the southwest to the northeast of the island, through which, by degrees, flowed the volcanic crust. The great and wondrous phenomenon then went on without violence. The outpouring was enormous, and the seething fused matter, ejected from the bowels of the earth, spread slowly and peacefully in the form of vast, level plains, or what are called mermelons or mounds. It was at this epoch that the rocks called feldspars, syenites, and porphyries appeared. But as a natural consequence of this overflow, the depth of the island increased. It can readily be believed what an enormous quantity of elastic fluids were piled up within its centre, when at last it afforded no other openings after the process of cooling the crust had taken place. At length the time came when despite the enormous thickness and weight of the upper crust, the mechanical forces of the combustible gases below became so great that they actually upheaved the weighty back and made for themselves huge and gigantic shafts. Hence the volcanoes which suddenly arose through the upper crust, and next the craters which burst forth at the summit of these new creations. It will be seen that the first phenomena in connection with the formation of the island were simply eruptive to these, however. Shortly preceded the volcanic phenomena. Through the newly formed openings escaped the marvellous mass of basaltic stones with which the plain we were now crossing was covered. We were trampling our way over heavy rocks of dark grey colour which, while cooling, had been moulded into six-sided prisms. In the back distance, we could see a number of flattened cones, which formerly were so many fire-vomiting mouths. After the basaltic eruption was appeased and set at rest, the volcano, the force of which increased with that of the extinct craters, gave free passage to the fiery overflow of lava and to the mass of cinders and pumice stone, now scattered over the sides of the
1: mountain, like dishevelled hair on the shoulders of Bashante. Here, in a nutshell, I
0: had the whole history of the phenomena from which Iceland arose. All take their rise in the fierce action of interior fires, and to believe that the central mass did not remain in a state of liquid fire, white-hot, was simply and purely madness. This being satisfactorily proved, QED, what insatiate folly to pretend to penetrate into the interior of the mighty Earth. This mental lecture delivered to myself while proceeding on a journey did me good. I was quite reassured as to the fate of our enterprise, and therefore went, like a brave soldier mounting a bristling battery, to the assault of old Sneffels. As we advanced, the road became every moment more difficult. The soil was broken and dangerous, the rocks broke and gave way under our feet, and we had to be scrupulously careful in order to avoid dangerous and constant falls. Hans advanced as calmly as if he had been walking over Salisbury Plain. Sometimes he would disappear behind huge blocks of stone and we momentarily lost sight of him. There was a little period of anxiety, and then there was a shrill whistle, just to tell us where to look for him. Occasionally he would take it into his head to stop to pick up lumps of rock and silently pile them up into small heaps in order that we might not lose our way On our
1: return, he had no idea of the journey we were about to undertake. At all events, the
0: precaution was a good one, though how utterly useless and unnecessary, but I must not anticipate. Three hours of terrible fatigue, walking incessantly, had only brought us to the foot of the great mountain. This will give some notion of what we had still to undergo. Suddenly, however, Hans cried a halt. That is, he made signs to that effect, and a summary kind of breakfast was laid out on the lava before us. My uncle, who now was simply Professor Hardwig, was so eager to advance, that he bolted his food like a greedy clown. This halt for refreshment was also a halt for repose. The professor was therefore compelled to wait the good pleasure of his imperturbable guide, who did not give the signal for departure for a good hour. Three Icelanders, who were as taciturn as their comrade, did not say a word, but went on eating and drinking very quietly and soberly. From this, our first real stage, we began to ascend the slopes of the Sneffels volcano, its magnificent snowy nightcap, as we began to call it, by an optical delusion very common in mountains. Appeared to me to be close at hand, and yet how many long, weary hours must elapse before we reached its summit. What unheard of fatigue must we endure? The stone on the mountain side, held together by no cement of soil, bound together by no roots or creeping herbs gave way continually under our feet, and went rushing below into the plains like a series of small avalanches. In certain places, the sides of the stupendous mountain were at an angle so steep that it was impossible to climb upwards, and we were compelled to get round these obstacles as best we might. Those who understand alpine climbing will comprehend our difficulties. Often we were obliged to help each other along by means of our climbing poles. I must say this for my uncle, that he stuck as close to me as possible. He never lost sight of me, and on many occasions his arm supplied me with firm and solid support. He was strong, wiry, and apparently insensible to fatigue. Another great advantage with him was that he had the innate sentiment of equilibrium, for he never slipped or falled in his step. The Icelanders, though heavily loaded, climbed with the agility of mountaineers.
1: Looking up, every now and then, at the height of the great volcano of Sneffels,
0: it appeared to me wholly impossible to reach the summit on that side, at all events, if the angle of inclination did not speedily change. Fortunately, after an hour of unheard-of fatigues, and of gymnastic exercises that would have been trying to an acrobat, we came to a vast field of ice, which wholly surrounded the bottom of the cone of the volcano. The natives called it the Tablecloth, probably from some such reason as the dwellers in the Cape of Good Hope call their mountain Table Mountain and their roads, Table Bay. Here, to our mutual surprise, we found an actual flight of stone steps, which wonderfully assisted our ascent. This singular flight of stairs was, like everything else, volcanic. It had been formed by one of those torrents of stones, cast up by the eruptions, and of which the Icelandic name is Stinner. If this singular torrent had not been checked in its descent by the peculiar shape of the flanks of the mountain, it would have swept into the sea and would have formed new islands. Such as it was, it served us admirably. The abrupt character of the slopes Momentarily increased, but these remarkable stone steps, a little less difficult than those of the Egyptian pyramids, were the one simple natural means by which we were enabled to proceed. About seven in the evening of that day, after having clambered up two thousand of these rough steps, we found ourselves overlooking a kind of spur or projection of the mountain, a sort of buttress upon which the cone-like crater, properly so called, leaned for support. The ocean lay beneath us at a depth of more than three thousand two
1: hundred feet, a grand and mighty spectacle, we had reached the reign of eternal snows. The cold was keen, searching and intense.
0: The wind blew with extraordinary violence. I was utterly exhausted. My worthy uncle, the professor, saw clearly that my legs refused further service and that, in fact, I was utterly exhausted. Despite his hot and feverish impatience, he decided, with a sigh, upon a halt. He called the Eder duck hunter to his side. That worthy, however, shook his head. Of fun for was his sole spoken reply. It appears, says my uncle, with a woe-begone look, that we must go higher. He then turned to Hans and asked him to give us some reason for this decisive response.
1: Mistor, replied the guide. Ja, Mistor, yes, the Mistor,
0: cried one of the Icelandic guides in a terrified tone. It was the first time he had spoken. What does this mysterious word signify? I anxiously inquired. Look, said my uncle. I looked down upon the plain below and saw a vast, a prodigious volume of pulverized pumice stone, of sand, of dust, rising to the heavens in the form of a mighty water spout. It resembled the fearful phenomena of a similar character known to the travellers in the desert of the Great Sahara. The wind was driving it directly towards that side of Sneffels on which we were perched. This opaque veil, standing up between us and the sun, projected a deep shadow on the flanks of the mountain. If this sand spout broke over us, we must all be infallibly destroyed, crushed in its fearful embraces. This extraordinary phenomenon, very common when the wind shakes the glaciers and sweeps over the arid plains, is in the Icelandic
1: tongue called Mistor cried our guide. Now
0: I certainly knew nothing of Danish, but I thoroughly understood that his gestures were meant to quicken us. The guide turned rapidly in a direction which would take us to the back of the crater, all the while ascending slightly. We followed rapidly, despite our excessive fatigue. A quarter of an hour later, hands paused to enable us to look back. The mighty whirlwind of sand was spreading up the slope of the mountain to the very spot where we had proposed to halt. Huge stones were caught up, cast into the air, and thrown about as during an eruption we were happily a little out of the direction of the wind, and therefore out of reach of danger. But for the precaution and knowledge of our guide, our dislocated bodies, our crushed and broken limbs, would have been cast to the wind, like dust from some unknown meteor. Hands, however, did not, think it prudent to pass the night on the bare side of the cone. We therefore continued our journey in a zigzag direction. The fifteen hundred feet which remained to be accomplished took us at least five hours. The turnings and windings, the no-through fairs, the marches and marches, turned that insignificant distance into at least three leagues. I never felt such misery, fatigue and exhaustion in my life. I was ready to faint from hunger and cold. The rarefied air at the same time painfully acted upon my lungs.
1: At last... When I thought myself at my last gasp, about eleven at night, it being
0: in that region quite dark, we reached the summit of Mount Sneffels. It was in an awful mood of mind, that despite my fatigue, before I descended into the crater which was to shelter us for the night, I paused to behold the sunrise at midnight on the very day of its lowest declination and enjoyed the spectacle of its ghastly pale rays cast upon the isle which lay sleeping at our feet. I no longer wondered at people travelling all the way from England
1: to Norway to behold this magical. And wondrous spectacle. Chapter thirteen: The Shadow of Scar Taris. Our supper was eaten with
0: ease and rapidity, after which everybody did the best he could for himself within the hollow of the crater. The bed was hard. The shelter unsatisfactory, the situation painful, lying in the open air, five thousand feet above the level of the sea. Nevertheless, it has seldom happened to me to sleep so well as I did on that particular night. I did not even dream, so much for the effects of what my uncle called wholesome fatigue. Next day, when we awoke under the rays of a bright and glorious sun, we were nearly frozen by the keen air. I left my granite couch and made one of the party to enjoy a view of the magnificent spectacle which developed itself, panorama-like, at our feet. I stood upon the lofty summit of Mount Sneffel's, southern peak. Thence I was able to obtain a view of the greater part of the island. The optical delusion, common to all lofty heights, raised the shore of the island, while the central portions appeared depressed. It was by no means too great a flight of fancy to believe that a giant picture Was stretched out before me. I could see the deep valleys that crossed each other in every direction. I could see precipices looking like sides of wells, lakes that seemed to be changed into ponds,
1: ponds that looked like puddles, and rivers that were transformed into pretty brooks.
0: To my right, were glaciers upon glaciers and multiplied peaks, topped with light clouds of smoke. The undulation of these infinite number of mountains, whose snowy summits make them look as if covered by foam, recalled to my remembrance the surface of a storm-beaten ocean. If I looked towards the west, The ocean lay before me in all its majestic grandeur, a continuation, as it were, of these fleecy hilltops. Where the earth ended and the sea began, it was impossible for the eye to distinguish. I soon felt that strange and mysterious sensation which is awakened in the mind when looking down from lofty hilltops and now i was able to do so without feeling any nervousness having fortunately hardened myself to that kind of sublime contemplation i wholly forgot who i was and where i was i became intoxicated with a sense of lofty sublimity without thought of the abyss into which my daring was soon about to plunge me. I was presently, however, brought back to the realities of life by the arrival of the Professor and Hans, who joined me upon the lofty summit of the peak. My uncle, turning in a westerly direction, pointed out to me a light cloud of vapour, a kind of haze, with a faint, outline of land rising out of the waters. Greenland, said he. Greenland, cried I in reply. Yes, continued my uncle, who always when explaining anything spoke as if he were in a professor's chair. We are not more than thirty-five leagues distance from that wonderful land. When the great annual break-up of the ice takes place, white bears come over to Iceland, carried by the floating masses of ice from the north. This, however, is a matter of little consequence. We are now on the summit of the great, the transcendent Snæfells, and here are its two peaks, north and south. Hands will tell you the name by which the people of Iceland call that on which we stand. My uncle turned to the imperturbable guide, who nodded and spoke as usual one word. Skartaris.
1: My uncle looked at me with a proud and triumphant glance. A crater, he said,
0: you hear. I did hear, but I was totally unable to make reply. The crater of Mount Sneffels represented an inverted cone, the gaping orifice apparently half a mile across, the depth indefinite feet. Conceive what this hole must have been like when full of flame and thunder and lightning. The bottom of the funnel-shaped hollow was about five hundred feet in circumference, by which it will be seen that the slope from the summit to the bottom was very gradual, and we were therefore clearly able to get there without much fatigue or difficulty. Involuntarily, I compared this crater to an enormous loaded cannon and the comparison completely terrified me. To descend into the interior of a cannon, I thought to myself, when perhaps it is loaded and will go off at the least shock, is the act of a madman. But there was no longer any opportunity for me to hesitate. Hans, with a perfectly calm and indifferent air, took his usual post at the head of the adventurous little band.
1: I followed without uttering a syllable. I felt like the lamb led to slaughter.
0: In order to render the descent less difficult, Hans took his way down the interior of the cone in rather a zigzag fashion, making, as the sailors say, Long tracks to the eastward, followed by equally long ones to the west. It was necessary to walk through the midst of eruptive rocks, some of which, shaken in their balance, some of which, shaken in their balance, went rolling down with thundering clamour to the bottom of the abyss. These continual falls awoke echoes of singular power and effect. Many portions of the cone consisted of inferior glaciers. Hans, whenever he met with one of these obstacles, advanced with a great show of precaution, sounding the soil with his long iron pole, in order to discover fissures and layers of deep Soft snow. In many doubtful or dangerous places, it became necessary for us to be tied together by a long rope, in order that should any one of us become unfortunate enough to slip, he would be supported by his companions. This connecting link was doubtless a prudent precaution but not by any means unattended with danger. Nevertheless, and despite all the manifold difficulties of the descent, along slopes with which our guide was wholly unacquainted, we made considerable progress without accident. One of our great parcels of rope slipped from one of the Iceland porters "'and rushed by a short cut to the bottom
1: of the abyss. "'By midday we were at the end of our journey. "'I looked upwards and
0: saw only the upper orifice of the cone, "'which served as a circular frame to a very small portion of the sky. "'A portion which seemed to me singularly beautiful.' should I ever again gaze on that lovely sunlit sky. The only exception to this extraordinary landscape was the peak of Scataris, which seemed lost in the great void of the heavens. The bottom of the crater was composed of three separate shafts, through which, during periods of eruption, When Sneffels was in action, the great central furnace sent forth its burning lava and poisonous vapors. Each of these chimneys or shafts gaped open-mouthed in our path. I kept as far away from them as possible, not even venturing to take the faintest peep downwards. As for the professor, After a rapid examination of their disposition and characteristics, he became breathless and panting. He ran from one to the other like a delighted schoolboy, gesticulating wildly and uttering incomprehensible and disjointed phrases in all sorts of languages. Hans, the guide, and his humbler companions seated themselves on some piles of lava and looked silently on.
1: They clearly took my uncle for a lunatic, and waited the result. Suddenly the
0: professor uttered a wild, unearthly cry. At first I imagined he had lost his footing and was falling headlong, into one of the yawning gulfs. Nothing of the kind. I saw him, his arms spread out to their widest extent, his legs stretched apart, standing upright before an enormous pedestal, high enough and black enough to bear a gigantic statue of Pluto. His attitude and mane were that of a man utterly stupefied, but his stupefaction was speedily changed to wildest joy. Harry,
1: Harry, come here, he cried, make haste, wonderful, wonderful. Unable to
0: understand what he meant, I turned to obey his commands. Neither Hans nor the other Icelanders moved a step. Look, said the professor, in something of the manner of the French general, pointing out the pyramids to his army, and fully partaking in his stupefaction, if not his joy, I read on the eastern side of the huge block of stone the same characters, half eaten away by the corrosive action of time. The name to me a thousand times accursed ani sukneizm cried my uncle now unbeliever do you begin to have faith it was totally impossible for me to answer a single word i went back to my pile of lava in a state of silent awe the evidence was unanswerably overwhelming in a few moments however my thoughts were far away back in my german home with gretchen and the old cook what would i have given for one of my cousin's smiles for one of the ancient domestic somlets and for my own feathered bed how long i remained in this state i know not All I can say is that when at last I raised my head from between my hands, there remained at the bottom of the crater only myself, my uncle and Hans. The Icelandic porters had been dismissed and were now descending the exterior slopes of Mount Sneffels, on their way to Stabby. How heartily did I wish myself with them. Hans slept tranquilly at the foot of a rock in a kind of real lava, where he had made himself a rough and ready bed. My uncle was walking about the bottom of the crater like a wild beast in a cage. I had no desire, neither had I the strength, to move from my recumbent position. Taking example by the guide, I gave way to a kind of painful solemnity, during which I seemed both to hear and feel continued heavings and shudderings in the mountain. In this way, we passed our first night in the interior of the crater. The next morning, a grey, cloudy, heavy sky hung like a funeral pall over the summit of the volcanic cone. I did not notice it so much from the obscurity that reigned around us as from the rage with which my uncle was devoured. I fully understood the reason, and again a glimpse of hope made my heart leap with joy. I will briefly explain the cause. Of the three openings which yawned beneath our steps, only one could have been followed by the adventurous Sorknasim. According to the words of the learned Icelander, it was only to be known by that one particular mentioned in the cryptograph that the shadow of Skartaris fell upon it. Just touching its mouth, in the last days of the month of June. We were, in fact, to consider the pointed peak as the stylus of an immense sundial, the shadow of which pointed on one given day, like the inexorable finger of fate, to the yawning chasm which led into the interior of the earth. Now, as often happens in these regions, Should the sun fail to burst through the clouds, no shadow. Consequently, no chance of discovering the right aperture. We had already reached the 25th of June. If the kindly heavens would only remain densely clouded for six more days, we should have to put off our voyage of discovery for another year when certainly there would be one person fewer in the party. I already had sufficient of the mad and monstrous enterprise. It would be impossible to depict the impotent rage of Professor Hardwig. The day passed away, and not the faintest outline of a shadow could be seen at the bottom of the crater. Hans the Guide never moved from his place. He must have been curious to know what we were about, if indeed he could believe we were about anything. As for my uncle, he never addressed a word to me. He was nursing his wrath to keep it warm. His eyes fixed on the black and foggy atmosphere, his complexion hideous with suppressed passion. Never had his eyes appeared so fierce, his nose so aquiline, his mouth so hard and firm. On the twenty-sixth, no change for the better, a mixture of rain and snow fell during the whole day. Hans very quietly built himself a hut of lava, into which he retired like Diogenes into his tub. I took a malicious delight in watching the thousand little cascades that flowed down the side of the cone, carried with them, at times, a stream of stones into the vastly deep below. My uncle was almost frantic, to be sure, it was enough to make even a patient man angry. He had reached to a certain extent the goal of his desires, and yet he was likely to be wrecked in port. But if the heavens and the elements are capable of causing us much pain and sorrow, there are two sides to a medal, and there was reserved for Professor Hardwig a brilliant and sudden surprise which was to compensate him for all his sufferings. Next day, the sky was still overcast, but on Sunday, the 28th, the last day but two of the month, with a sudden change of wind and a new moon, there came a change of weather. The sun poured its beaming rays to the very bottom of the crater. Each hillock, every rock, every stone, every asperity of the soil, had its share of luminous effulgence, and its shadow fell heavily on the soil. Among others, to his insane delight, the shadow of Scartaris was marked and clear, and moved slowly with the radiant start of the day. My uncle moved with it in a state of mental ecstasy. At twelve o'clock exactly, when the sun had attained its highest altitude for the day, the shadow fell upon the edge of the central pit. Here it is, gasped the professor in an agony of joy. Here it is, we have found it. Forward, my friends, into the interior of the earth. I looked curiously at Hans to see what reply he would make to this terrific announcement. Forward, said the guide tranquilly. Forward it is, answered my uncle, who was now in the seventh heaven of delight. When we were quite ready... Our
1: watches indicated thirteen minutes past one.